Well, it's not always easy as you read through these prophets. And so, just as Christmas is coming and you have to buy presents, I wonder if in your house anywhere you have a study Bible. You know, you know what a study Bible is, don't you? It's one of these great Bibles that has well thought through instructions on, on how to know the context of each verse and passage in Scripture. This is the ESV study Bible. Or we give out to all our graduating seniors the spirit of the Reformation study Bible. And if you study God's Word, uh, oftentimes what may appear confusing is quite simple if you just know the context. And so in verse 1, there is a statement that over Israel now there looms a shadow of darkness. For the kingdom of Assyria looms against the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem trembles in that day. And the study Bible, I mean, I I can read, you see in your program, I studied Charles Spurgeon and Brian Bill and and Ray Pritchard, and you may not be able to read them all, but the study Bible says, it lays out for you the context, Assyria is breathing threats of violence, and there is a darkness over the earth. And Israel of that time is a picture of our broken world today, and there is gloom and dismay and uncertainty and danger and fear across the globe as there was in Israel of that time. And yet verse 2 tells us, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. And a light is to come into the world in the midst of the darkness. And where will that light be found? You know the answer, don't you? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And so a day is coming, we are told, in Galilee. Where did Jesus live, by the way? He lived in the the region of Galilee. And A light is to come into Galilee one day. And then verse 6, our text, tells us about this one who is to come. This baby who will be born, this child who will be born, the son who will be given. And verse 6 tells us this person has the attributes of God and the reality of humanity joined together. As Isaiah cries out, he says, and his name shall be called. And what you have are four names. They're actually nouns. They're nouns of of describing someone along with an adjective. So there are four different couplets, you see. And what are they? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Let's just survey them right now for a couple of minutes. And I want to ask you, first, is Jesus your wonderful counselor? You know, that's an important question. Think about this. Uh, a counselor. Now, when people think about this, uh, uh, usually they think of a therapist. 
And uh, a counselor or a therapist in our modern world usually employs a technique uh, called Rogerian reflective listening. Uh, Carl Rogers was the father of the school of therapy, and Rogers would say what you need to do to be a good counselor is to be an empathetic, skillful listener and to reflect back to the person. So, so you say to your, your therapist, uh, I'm just so discouraged. All these things are going wrong. I can hardly get out of bed. And the counselor says, oh, so you're depressed. You say, yeah, I'm depressed. And then you say, and, and I got anxiety inside of me. I'm, I'm afraid of this. And uh, I just have such concern I can't sleep. And so the counselor reflects back, oh, so you're anxious. And you say, yeah, I'm anxious. <laughs> and the idea behind that kind of therapy is just you get to talk and maybe you'll hear yourself a little bit as you talk and, and get some insight that might help you. But Carl Rogers only got it half right because counseling is not just about listening. But a good counselor is a counselor who also gives advice and counsel and wisdom. And we are told of Jesus Christ in Colossians 2, verse 2 and 3, that in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus has the wisdom. That's why he is the wonderful counselor. But the great thing about Jesus Christ is he not just has the wisdom, but what does he do? He shares his wisdom. He gives us counsel for how to live in the storms and the difficulties and the frustrations of our lives. Do you listen to him? He's the counselor. King David and uh, Isaiah, they both have this deep sense in their life. Look at Psalm 16, verse 7. David cries out, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Isaiah says in, verse, in chapter 28, This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And 11.2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This, by the way, is another messianic prophecy. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel. There's the word. And might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Of whom does he write? He writes of Jesus. So wise. The great counselor. And, the, and actually, um, the adjective used here is what word? Wonderful. He is the wonderful counselor. The Hebrew word is sometimes translated marvelous. Another word, amazing, fantastic. And you remember, don't you, that Jesus said to his disciples at a very difficult time for the, for the disciples around Jesus, he said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Are you listening? Do you listen to my word. My words, Jesus says, are spirit and life. And Peter, when things got really bad at the end of John chapter 6, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Can you relate to Peter? Have you come to the place in your own spiritual journey that you say, Lord, you have the words of life for me. I, I pray you do. And this Christmas season, will you, in your own heart, say, Lord, I'm tired of figuring everything else out, 
figuring everything out on my own. Lord, be my counselor, my wonderful counselor. Will you do that? You know, Jesus, he comes alongside me. I I had to forgive someone recently. You know, forgiving is hard. Someone hurt me, but they ask for forgiveness. I go to a therapist and I say to the therapist, you know, this person really hurt me and I, I have this sense I need to forgive them. And the therapist says, so you need to forgive. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me how to forgive. Oh, that's above my pay grade. Because you see, forgiveness requires deep spiritual surgery. There is, don't kid yourself, it's not just a quick, oh, don't worry about it. That's not forgiveness. But Jesus, the wonderful counselor, comes alongside me and he says, John, John, you need to learn how to forgive from me. And Jesus himself forgives me my sins. He lays down his life for me. And then in his word, he instructs me how to tear that snapshot of the other person at their worst. And I put that away because I've been treasuring that ugly snapshot of them. And I learn that they are made in the image of God. And I remember that now as Jesus has forgiven me, I surrender my right to get even. And I bless them because Jesus is my wonderful counselor. Have you had an experience like that? You know, there are times I I get just so selfish and self-absorbed, you know. It's all about me. And Jesus Christ steps into my own massive self-preoccupation and he says, John, you've been thinking about yourself enough. I think it's time for you to just believe that I'm going to take care of you I think it's time for you to believe that I love you more than anyone in the world could love you. And I just want you to forget about yourself for a a little bit. And why don't you get outside yourself, John, and go just love on other people? Really, Lord? Yeah, really. How do I do that? And my wonderful counselor shows me how to do that. And he changes my heart through the cross, through the Holy Spirit. He's my wonderful counselor. Are you at the place in your spiritual journey where this sort of conversation happens as his word in the Bible is applied and penetrates into your heart because the word of Christ dwells in you richly? Now, the second name for Jesus is is, is, is extraordinary, that he is the mighty God. And here we learn something very important about the baby in the manger. What is that? You see... Uh, At the beginning of verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And here we learn clearly that this Messiah is the mighty God. He is God. It's a statement of deity. Do you believe this about Jesus Christ? The deity of Jesus Christ. And, and what we get, I have a friend named Angelo Giuliani who gave a talk on this 25 years ago. I still remember Angelo saying, do you know what it means when it says a son is given? It means he was existing before the gift was given. It's, it's a statement about the incarnation. 
It's a statement of God giving God to the world. That's what the incarnation's all about. That's what Christmas is all about. Do you believe this about Jesus? God giving God to the world. And in fact, when Jesus walked on this earth, he said things like this. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. The preexistent eternal God who reveals himself. He is the I am. And in, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 8, some of you are studying the book of Hebrews, but of the Son, he says, okay, that's the Son. The Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He calls him God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That's the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy that he will establish his kingdom and it will last forever. So he is God, but take yourself back 5,000 years. When you think of God 5,000 years ago, you think of the river deity, the little god, the, uh, the, the mountain deity, and all the tribes had their own little gods, parochial gods. But what's the adjective used to describe this god? Our god, our Christ. He is the mighty god. And this is a statement that is only, a, this is an adjective that is applied to, to uh, heroes of valor, Heroes. In fact, Brian Bill, in his notes on this, he says the best translation of this is not mighty God, but that he is the, I like this, he is the God hero. He is the God hero. He is the one preeminent who conquers all. And, I, and this is very, very helpful, this adjective, the mighty God. You put them together. It tells you two things. It, it tells me that Jesus is the God that I worship and Jesus is the person that I trust. Can you say that? Jesus is the God, the mighty God, but he is the mighty one, the one I trust. I don't know about you, but I fall into this routine of self-reliance, self-trust. I get into trouble, and the first thing I do is work myself out of it. I have to fix it. Do we have any other fixers here? Anybody married to a fixer? You know, or parents are fixers? What, what, what's that like? I've got to do it. It's all up to me. But I'm not mighty. He is mighty. He's the God hero. So have you come to the place in your spiritual journey where you say, Jesus, I want you to act on my behalf. I surrender. I trust you, mighty God. Well, the third title is that he is your everlasting father. And if you turn over your sermon outline, you'll see this, this tremendous contrast in the adjective and the noun uh, of this name. He's called the everlasting father. The adjective everlasting, what is that? That refers to his infinity. And the word father here is not making a Trinitarian reference. The word father here is speaking of care and compassion. 
and closeness. But you put these two together, it's really quite extraordinary. First word, father. You know, in this church, we have a lot of boys. We have a lot of boys in this church. And afterwards, you go downstairs, you grab your bagel, and you watch all these little guys dashing around the place. But they always, it seems like they always dash back onto their dad. Now, I know the mothers, the mothers carry them uh, an awful lot. But it is just so cool around here to see these boys hanging on their dads. Up on his lap. Girls, too. There is that moment of connection that they have. Father to son. That's what he's describing here with the word father. It's it's in Psalm 103, verse 13. Do you know that verse? It says um, there, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And yet, he's the everlasting father. And here is this revelation that he is a God of infinity. He is a father that is transcendent. He is high and holy and lifted up. He is the alpha and he is the omega. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's infinite and eternal in our definition of the living and true God. And yet he's father. This is the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of the incarnation. You know, I talk to people, skeptics, skeptical of Christianity. I like to do that. Maybe you're here and skeptical, and I would, be, I would love to just chat with you sometime. Um, and so would many people here. But I hear things like this. I believe that God is, there's a God, there's a force like in Star Wars. There's a force out there that governs all things. I'm not so silly to believe it's all just a cosmic accident. But I don't have any, I don't know what you mean by a personal relationship with the Lord. And what I like to say to people is, well, you know, there's a verse in the prophet Isaiah, verse 57, verse 15, chapter 57, verse 15. Look at this verse with me. This is, this is extraordinary. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. What does he say, this God? He says, I dwell in a high and holy place. There it is. Transcendent, infinite, eternal, holy, set apart. But that's not the end of the verse. Look at how the verse goes on. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And that same high God comes down to the humble and dwells within them. That's the incarnation. Is that your experience, my friend? If Jesus Christ is alive in you, you have the high and holy one dwelling in residence Close, closer, close to you. You know, one of my favorite hymns, it was written in the 1970s by a man named Graham Kendrick, and the music is so 
1970s. We don't, we don't often sing it here, although we have once or twice. But the words, I love the words, and I may make you sing it sometime again soon. Um, the words of this hymn are meekness and majesty. It goes like this. Listen, just try and follow with me. Take this in. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. I don't think you can pack the whole Bible into a little verse any better than he does there. He is the God hero, the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. How do I I get him to be my Father? John 1, verse 12 tells us. But to all who did receive him, this is Messiah Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And he doesn't grow tired because he's everlasting. He never wears out. He doesn't put you on hold. He never gets old. He doesn't pass away. My dad, my father, uh, is deceased for more than 20 years. I still miss him. But God... My Lord, my heavenly Father, will never be deceased because his son was deceased, died in my place, rose from the dead, triumphant forever. My God is everlasting. Is your God everlasting? Father to you. And then, fourth, he's the Prince of Peace. And here is a name that is quite remarkable. In two Sundays, we're going to study it even more deeply But the Hebrew word is Sar Shalom. And if you walk into any Jewish home that it takes their Judaism seriously, they will say to you the greeting, Shalom. What a marvelous word, Shalom. How do we we translate this one Hebrew word? (laughs) The Hebrew lexicon has a very difficult time translating it. Instead, they have this long list of English words to try and fit into shalom. What Words like what? Safety, soundness, welfare and health, prosperity, peace, quiet, tranquility, shalom. Sar, Shalom. Sar is a term of royalty. There's the noun. He is the prince. He is the prince. It is the royal one. He is the royal one who comes. And now we know that that only hints at the royal destiny of Jesus, for the book of Revelation tells you that Jesus is not just the prince of princes, but he is what? He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we sing Handel's Messiah, king of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever, the fulfillment of our very passage. He is Sar. He is the Sar of Shalom. Shalom. Do you remember Moses' brother named Aaron? 
Aaron was a priest. And in the book of Numbers, Aaron raises his hands up over the flock. And he says, the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you shalom, peace. Our Savior Jesus came to bring peace. Do you remember? He, he spoke to his disciples before he went to be crucified. And Jesus said, my peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Oh, I know the storms in your heart, the storms in your life, the frustrations you have in relationships. I know the tension you have in school with all the exams you have to take, the expectations of your parents, the expectations of your children. You can't sleep at night. Who will give you peace? You know, there are a lot of counterfeits that promise this peace. Uh, Paul Anka, uh, I'm showing my age here, you know, he wrote a love song. Romantic love promises to take away your troubles. He, he wrote this song, I heard it on the radio yesterday. You know, uh, there's, I believe there's nothing stronger than our love. You know that song? Am I the only old guy here? And, and the hymn goes like this. When I'm with you, baby, all my worries disappear. Troubles that surround me disappear when you are near. Now, as much as Nina is overwhelmed with romantic love for me, <laughs> do you really think I make all her troubles disappear? And she would be very foolish to assume that I could. I make her troubles. Who, who will make your troubles find their place? Who will be with you in the midst of the storm, in the relational frustration? Who will never leave you or forsake you? Who says, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Who said that? Jesus did. He is sar shalom for you and for me. How does this passage end? It's so interesting. You see, someone from the line of David, that is the king of Israel, will establish the kingdom of God. We know who that is. It's Jesus Christ, the humble king, who is now enthroned on high at the right hand of the Father. And his kingdom is spreading. The church around the world, the people of God, or the nation of the King Jesus. And among us, there is to be peace. There is to be shalom. There is to be comfort. There is to be love. This is Sar Shalom for us and for you. And his kingdom will never end because he's the everlasting father. He's the, 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 the God hero for you and for me. What do I do with all this, you say? Oh, Pastor John, wow. What do I do? What does this mean? It means this. It means that you surrender your life to him. And you take yourself off the throne and you welcome the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the God hero, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, onto the throne of your life. Have you done that? Have you? And Charles Spurgeon, he knows Long Islanders. 
Charles Spurgeon lived hundreds of years ago. He understands we're not Long Island. We are Strong Island. How are you? Never better. Just fine. Charles Spurgeon says, I beseech you, renounce yourself. You have been resting, perhaps, in some hope that you would make yourself better and so save yourself. Give up that deluded fancy. He says, (laughs) I don't want to insult you, but he says this. He says, you have seen the silkworm. This is some of you. You have seen the silkworm. It will spin and spin and spin and spin, and then it will die where it has spun itself a shroud. And your good works are nothing but the spinning for yourself, a robe for your dead soul. Trying harder, doing better, pleasing people. That's the best you can do. He says you're the silkworm building your own shroud. Spurgeon says instead, renounce yourself and look to another. Look to the superior, excellent one, a son who was given. God gave God to you. And rest, rest, my friend, rest, trust in him. Oh, pastor, I'm trying so hard. Rest in him. But who's going to do it? And how does it end? Verse 7 the very end. If you give up yourself, Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabbath, the Lord of rest, Jesus Christ. And we pray, O Lord, I pray for myself that you will enable me to look beyond myself to you as you are revealed, Lord Jesus Christ. Take your place in our hearts on our thrones, the thrones of our hearts. Forgive me and forgive my friends here for the spinning, 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 spinning like the silkworm, a shroud of religiosity and busyness. And teach me to trust in you, my God hero, my everlasting Father, my Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. We worship you now. We give our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to sing together uh, just a great statement of, of faith that he is the famous one over all the earth. Michael, if you would begin for us, let's stand together. Michael will sing through the first verse and then he'll invite us in to join him. Lift up your voices. You are the Lord, the famous one, the famous one. Great is your name in all the earth.
passions and every heart. You alone are God. You alone are God. You are Lord, the famous one, famous one. Great is your name. Oh, wow.